0: Everyone. Anyone here for the first time? It's usually not quite as uncomfortable, but for obvious reasons, one reason, uh, the situation that we're all uh, quite familiar with. like to do this evening is maintain some continuity. There's a series of uh, reflections called Self-Knowing, A Quiet Passion. We've had three or four of those talks already and I'd like to keep going but I want to guide it so that it makes direct contact with what's going on right now. So, uh, both in terms of Uh, my remarks and also uh, when we have an opportunity to talk things over together. When we left off well first of all I better just very briefly what I tried to do is maintain some continuity uh, and move this theme ahead at the same time. The term self-knowing rather than self-knowledge Uh, in a sense, is not that important. In another sense, there is a distinction that I think is worth making. And if you understand the distinction, I don't really care about the words. You can use self-knowledge. Knowing is active. Uh, Self-knowing is something that goes on, or can go on, all the time, anywhere. It's not restricted to a cushion or to CIMC. Moreover, it isn't really knowledge in the sense of the accumulation of insights, reflections, information, connections, storing it in memory, drawing upon it when you need it. This is another very useful human function. And finally, uh, it's not even really about self as we think of it, although we have to of necessity begin there or it's an attempt to look at self. In short, it's not uh, so much... First of all, it's dynamic. It's alive and has everything to do with learning. Uh, The learning here is by each one of us. No one can do it for us. The teachings uh, are meant to be used to help us do this learning. And the degree to which we take up these teachings, put them into practice and test them, then you're in the mainstream of the the right attitude for Dharma, at least the Buddha's Dharma. When we left off last time, uh, I briefly uh, mentioned a very, very important teaching of the Buddha uh, called the Kalama Sutta, uh, which is sometimes translated as the importance of the uh, freedom of inquiry. That is, this is not meant to be another belief. I'm not going to tell you... I've gotten, this week has been quite a busy week. Uh, I've never received so many emails, requests for telephone interviews, uh, letters, and so forth, all about this subject. Um, I think it's more a sign of uh, desperation and a, a reaching out for some guidance But what I don't intend to do is some of the questions that I've received are what would Buddhists say about, what what would a Buddhist, how would a Buddhist behave like. I'm not very comfortable with that. I'm not attempting. I have strong views and opinions, don't get me wrong. Quite strong. Well-reasoned out and experienced over a lifetime. I've been involved in war and peace for a long time. I've been in the military, I've used that experience in ways that are uncommon and so forth. But I'm not interested in, unless it becomes necessary for other reasons, I'm not interested in bringing you along and converting you to my enlightened way of looking at the political situation or what next and so forth. What I am interested in doing is to uh, encourage you to at least hint at the resources. I would say immense resources. They're quite simple, but they have as much power as you're willing to give them of Dharma. And that this is the time when we need its help. And so I'm going to twist everything in that direction. Um, it's not so much a matter of beliefs, replacing one set of beliefs for another. And the Kalama Sutta makes that very, very clear. It's to test what the Buddha had to say. And if you don't find that it holds up, if it's not beneficial, if it doesn't help you to live, then drop it and move on. And so that's the challenge I feel that I would like to drop, put out for all of us. Uh, These times and these teachings are meant for each other. Dharma is not uh, restricted to IMS or CIMC or weekend retreats or quietude, in spite of the title of the talk. And it should help us live our life. That's the whole point. The Buddha was concerned about teaching suffering and the end of suffering. What could be more to the point? So, but of course, in order to test these teachings, you have to really test them. You have to do it. And it's not a matter of just hearing it, reflecting on it, and then deciding that it's worthwhile or it's useless. Uh, you can do that, but that's not what it's not, That's not what's meant. So... Um, Self-knowing is this sensitivity to your experience from moment to moment with a willingness to learn from that experience. It's ongoing. It goes right up till death if you will engage with this project. And quiet passion, in one sense, is obvious um, to really refine your understanding of yourself and how you live and how you act not only on the cushion but with others with nature and so forth that takes love and a certain passion it's not as visible as other forms of passion which are more demonstrative and external and often some of the most passionate things we're doing are done quietly there's about a 3 month retreat is about to begin again at IMS it's in order to get through it with some uh, stability and to extract value from spending three months in silence uh, it takes energy and a commitment and it's, a, it's it's best done if you really want to do something, you really want to I would say move towards sanity uh, and the movement towards sanity at least in this linkage self-knowing is very linked to sanity self-knowing is very linked to correct action how could it not be? What the Buddha is saying is that ignorance is the problem It's not the Taliban, Bin Laden, that's an expression of something further down the pike. And of course it has to be dealt with on its own level. So the great human problem is ignorance. We don't understand ourselves and as a result the way we live shows itself to be unsatisfactory. A few, Some Buddhist words, I'm not against sharing the Buddhist perspective, not at all but I just don't want to share it as an ideology for you to subscribe to, but rather for you to want to take and to work with. In the Theravadan teachings, which are uh, quite important to the teachings and the practices of this center, what are known as the kalasas or afflictions of the human mind, greed, hatred, delusion, and their many offspring is the source of the misery. Let's assume that most everyone, if not everyone, is born with their share of greed, hatred and delusion. How many people on the planet? How many billion? Does anyone know roughly? 300 billion? What? what? Six billion multiply 6 billion, multiply greed, hatred, and delusion by 6 billion. Throw us all together and this is what you get. So it's the human race has hit rock bottom, although I hesitate to say that because uh, whatever created this could go beyond it. And and we're we're going to go into that. The quiet passion has to do with a commitment. It's subtle, it's refined, but it's a flame and when practice gets strong and that grows out of doing it, it becomes like a flame. Awareness becomes like a flame and it burns through our trouble. At least that's the metaphor that makes the most sense for me, experientially. Uh, It's also quiet in that the practice takes you to silence, inner silence, Uh, whether you call it emptiness, uh, or silence, or whatever language you like. When you start to taste this silence, and uh, it's not that it's so far off that no one here has access to it unless you become a monk or a nun or go off to a cave or a monastery. Because we, anyone who's done practice for a while, we taste it in bits and pieces. A glimpse here, a glimpse there. Ten seconds, five seconds, maybe a minute. But something's happening in that silence and as more and more you come to recognize it as a normal and extraordinary part of being human that there's so much more to us than our personality even if exhaustively studied and you finally really understand yourself in the sense of the story of me and, and my life with all the pictures and memories and conclusions and reactions and transmission from parents and grandparents and all stored up in this film archive, edited constantly. And Let's say you do a lot of serious psychotherapeutic work and of course when you watch the mind you're seeing the same thing. If I put it in terms of a question, is there anything beyond that? And of course the answer of the Buddha is, is there anything beyond that? That's the least. That's just a small corner of a a field that's been cultivated endlessly to the neglect of a vast infinite field silence is a code word for wisdom and compassion for intelligence that's intrinsic to the human nature it's not exclusive to the Buddhists or anyone else it's part of the nature of mind and so anyone who tastes that silence uh, it's hard to not develop a passion for it but it's a quiet passion for the quiet because if you got noisy, then the silence is gone and you're back where you were. Now, during these times, when there's tremendous challenge, and I'd like to talk about them, that uh, right away, uh, self-knowing, is it's very easy for self-knowing to be uh, pushed to the rear of the, of the car, to be neglected altogether and for us to get lost in content lost in content in the sense of uh, drowning in it or uh, repressing it escaping from it denying it analyzing it explaining it crying about it reading about it talking about it and it's very easy to forget about ourselves even though that's what's going on of course it's affecting me and that's I think why we're here tonight at least I hope so Um I'm so in the moment that I have no whatever was four seconds ago is ancient history. Can anyone help me out? <laughs> it's just the early stages of senility, sorry. what Something a bit maybe after that. I do, <laughs> but, uh, but there was something before getting that. Getting more what? More Even before that. Uh, okay. All right, it'll come back. Give me a moment. Can you do that? Mm-hmm. Okay. So one casually, if you're on the path of self-knowing, which is what I would say Vipassana is, is that you get lost in stuff and you don't do it. Probably you all know what I'm talking about. And you also know what I'm going to do tonight, which is tell you to do it. Uh, But also, what is, and related to this, of course, is the tremendous challenge of how can you come to inner silence when there's so much outer turmoil, when there's so much uh, anguish, when there's so much pain. Not only that, it sounds very much like to go towards silence is to neglect the world that we live in, to turn our back on on what's happening and to escape into some silence. What I hope I can at least hint at tonight is that in order to really be clear out there, it's helpful to be able to go in here Now, that can be used to escape from what's going on. Those of you who have been yogis for a while know that when you get concentrated, you leave the whole world behind. And if you go off to certain retreats, you even have a stage set, which uh, helps you do that for extended periods of time. But that's not designed to be a way of life, at least for most of us. Because certain of the things that can be accomplished in silence, in meditation, enable us to then enter into action in ways that are useful, that are beneficial. And we hinted at that last time in the Buddha's discussion with his son, Rahula, where he gave Rahula some hints about action. Before you act, during your action, and even after you act, by means of reflection, is what you're doing, thinking, saying, is it beneficial? for you and for others. If it is, full speed ahead. If it isn't, don't do it. If if you're doing it and you find in the middle of it that you were wrong, stop and apologize or just stop. And if after it's over you thought it was the right thing to do, in retrospect you see that you were really off, then learn from it and let it go and move on. So, uh, the silence is uh, very practical it's at least survival and here by survival I don't mean of a physical body I mean of a certain dignity and integrity for all of us in the face of tremendous uh, challenges let's just look at some of them they're verbal right now but they're more than verbal but uh, just listening to the news a half an hour or so before coming over here I, here are some of the things that I got from it maybe it was 45 minutes one grieve. It's important for us to grieve. Who doesn't know that? We're we're all grieving. I mean, I think so. If you're not, it's okay. But most of us probably are grieving. Okay. So that encouragement is good encouragement. But then it also tells us get back into action. Fly, buy things. In other words, <laughs> be, be normal. Be normal. So grieve and be normal. But not only grieve and be normal. But get ready for a war that's going, to last, that's going to last possibly for years. So grieve, be normal, uh, muster up the strength and resolve to face rather difficult conditions that might be uh, extended for years. And it goes on, be calm. But then there's a sh- there is footage on uh, what a person who gets smallpox looks like. How are you going to be calm? you can. But you're looking at the face of someone with smallpox, or what anthrax does. More and more, of course, it's become clear that the, um, that the mind that can that can produce the actions we just we know of, uh, if it can do that, well, there's nothing that it, that it won't do. Buddhism, the teachings of the Buddha, if it's anything, it's a religion of the mind. The heart of the Buddhist teaching has everything to do with the mind. So the terrorist, the, the, the bombings, what we call terrorism, that all came from human minds. And also the attempts to eradicate it, the attempts to live in a very, very different way, what we're try- attempting to do here, that also comes from the mind. The secret of both misery and happiness is in each one of our minds. It's not nowhere else. And if you're a Dharma practitioner, of course you've heard that message again and again. But during times like this, it's very easy for us to be pushed off course and to forget what we know and to, and to not do it very much. Or to think we're doing it, but not really doing it. Um, trying to remember over the week... Uh, different questions that came up on the phone or overhearing things in cafes. and I go, still go to cafes, I'm not fully enlightened. <laughs> because I think some of it might be representative of our minds and of course I'll be drawing upon a little bit of my own experience. Someone asked me you've been meditating a long time did you cry? Uh, I was taken aback. Of course I've cried. Uh, I'm not the Buddha out on the grounds there in the back which is stone. Uh, well, I thought if you meditate you would be have equanimity and blah blah. Um, it's a funny thing with practice, and of course this question comes up after a while, when people say, you know, I feel I'm suffering more. I'm more sensitive now that I've been doing this meditation. Absolutely. No question about it. If you're really doing this, you become more sensitive. That's what being awake is. Sensitive in the sense of discerning. You really begin to notice things. Even if it's just a tree you're looking at, or an animal, or anything. The sounds of a bird chirping are much more vivid. Those who've been practicing know what I'm talking about. So meditation makes you dramatically more sensitive in the sense of discerning or knowing that kind of refinement but it also makes you more vulnerable. You see pain, that same discernment sees pain more readily in others. If you're really practicing the path of self-knowing, self-knowing is not kind of, sort of, self-knowing. It means unconditional commitment to learn how to receive fully your experience as it appears without preference. That means facing all those critters that are living inside of us. Some of which are there, but we don't want to know about them. And there's disappointment. Some of our cherished self-images crash to the ground. If you're willing to take a look, we're not living the way we uh, forged an image of ourselves. It seems to be some kind of contradiction. So uh, the pain in another, the pain in yourself, is more sensitive, but. Well, then why do you people meditate? It sounds like uh, self-defeating. Because you also become stronger. This is not so easy. I'm speaking from my own experience. There's a subtle kind of strength that balances all this out. And it comes from, I think, at least this is the best I can do in terms of words, refinement, uh, rather sensitivity in terms of seeing clearly. Clearly, and when you're hurting, that same awareness is directed to the hurting. Of course, that's all. I'm not saying anything special. That's the practice. And out of that comes less of a resistance or fear to be in pain, less fear of fear, etc., less fear of loneliness, and more of an ability to uh, open our heart so that there's room for everything that's in us. And that's, of course, liberation. That's, that's going in the direction of liberation. And there's a strength that comes from that. It also can't be done with a certain amount of strength, without a certain amount of strength. So to be a yogi takes courage. It's not just in, out, in, out, mm, nice <coughs> feeling, uh, 20 minutes is up. Let's, uh, let's go jogging. By all means, in, out, in, out, in, out. But there's more to the Wisdom than just calming down, as vital as that is. So, yogis do cry, even experienced ones. For me, the, the firemen did it. Uh, the first newscast was um, Everyone's running out and they're running in. Let's see, other things. Um, Humiliation. This has been a humiliation to the United States, but it's more than the United States. Uh, as the days unfold, we see it's an assault on so many, on a way of life. It's an assault, even the symbolism of the world trade. I, can, I have to bring some interpretation in. Uh, the global economy is not impressive to some people, nor is modernity or living a secular life or many of the freedoms that we seem to cherish that isn't shared by everyone. Um, And what's happened is what didn't happen during World War II. We were at war with two major industrial powers, Japan and Germany. And we weren't bombed or assaulted. The homeland remained free. Amazing. Amazing same in Korea, Vietnam, the Cold War and here are some people with uh, little knives or something, a little, little shaving kit uh, could do uh, damage that is inconceivable. Every, it gets worse and worse every day in human terms and being able to accomplish an extraordinary destabilization of a modern powerful industrial country. I would say there's humiliation there it's being covered over with flags and pride and all kinds of other things but, uh, and fear that goes along with that. Now, humiliation is a very, very important human experience. Speaking from, I'm going back and forth between a culture and us as individuals. I don't know if you've ever felt humiliated, I have, and it's very important as to what you do with humiliation. What you can do is strike out at that which is you have identified as humiliating you exclusively it's a bad world with bad people and it becomes a kind of cowboy morality with good guys and bad guys shooting them up and of course you're the good guy or you turn it on yourself and you just uh, put yourself out of commission psychologically because of what you've interpreted as being humiliation of course there's another road, no surprise and that's the road that each humiliation uh, has an immense amount to teach. If you're willing to throw the word away, is a powerful blow at our sense of self, safety, ego, whatever. Uh, it unearths tremendous energy. It unearths truths that perhaps have not been looked at, that have been latent and dormant. And right now, I think it's pretty much almost an animal. The reaction is, if you attack me, I have to attack you. Uh, so this is not a time that much is being said about, you know, this humiliation, this uh, everything that's happened. It's not only the Of course, it's. I'm not going to debate pacifism versus war or Gandhi. There is no Gandhi on the scene. I don't know what Gandhi would do. Who would he pr- protest against? Who would he fast against? Where are they? It's different. Okay. Um, so right now, I, I think it's inevitable. I don't see how any way around it. there's going to be some physical striking out. There's got to be a, a military response for all kinds of reasons. Okay. My hope is this is again this is personal. I can't keep everything out. Maybe it's all just one big fat opinion. You know, just with a light coat of dharma over. It. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is there something for us to learn after the shock uh, hit me? and uh, i was it was perfect i was doing yoga finished my yoga session had a nice little smile on my face body felt limber breath flowing freely lots of energy then i did my sitting my vipassana practice sitting there doing what we all do here and the phone rang and a friend called me up this was relatively late like 1 12:31 i don't uh, do you know what's happened? Do you know the news? And I said, I thought it was some good news. You know, X got married or Y had a child or I don't know what. Um, no, I don't. He said, well, and I was told and I put it on. And I put it on as a plane was flying into the building. And it looked like a Steven Spielberg special effects or scientific a science fiction. I've expected Godzilla to come out right in back of it or King Kong, you know, with the little lady in his hand and it'd just be a Hollywood production. But it wasn't. This is actually going on. This is... It's what is. This is what happened. So, after the shock of that and emotions that I don't have to spell out, you all have had your own version of it. Uh, I was left with a question. I don't know if we can call it a koan to make it sound a little more Buddhist. The question was, what are the conditions that are necessary to produce such hatred? What is going on here? What What conditions have to emerge and exist to turn the human mind in this direction to such an extreme? Uh, and I've been living with that and I I have some, I do follow what's going on in the world and it points to something that uh, the modern world has to learn. It's not just America, but right now we can limit it to that. We're Americans, we're here and it's happened to us. There's something to be learned from all this. I'm not going to tell you the direction I have gone with it, but it certainly includes uh, a fresh look at foreign policy, uh, the way we view the people of the Middle East and so forth. And I'm Jewish. I have an emotional bias towards Israel that I can't help. But a certain fresh look is needed to examine the entire canvas. Uh, That takes a big mind to be able to do that. I'm not sure our government has people who can do it. This is not a put-down. I mean, any government I don't see any any Gandhis or anyone like that I have more faith in the people in the American people so I think we have to support Bush here comes my it's necessary but we also have to watch him and we have to watch what's going on uh, he has the hardest job in the world right now I would say uh, I don't think he counted on this he's much more of a domestic president uh, so that's that but now let's play it move it to us as individuals what did it bring up in you? I spoke to a friend of mine Tani Sarobiku, who comes here once a year a monk a western monk in California and we compared notes and I said what is it bringing up in California? he said fear and anger mainly I see a lot of that too more fear it seems than anger the anger uh, is there, but fear is, and it seems to get stronger. As, And, of course, sorrow. Other things I've seen, and I'm interested in what, what your experience has been, when something like this happens, and this is where self-knowing uh, is crucial, and I'm going to do my best to link being actively engaged in the world that we live in, whether we like it or not, and contemplative work. They're not irreconcilable. It's not necessarily a head-on collision. In fact, those two words can fall away because it's one whole human being attempting to live with some sanity. I've seen, uh, of course, fear. I've gotten phone calls from people who have lost people due to to suicide. And there's been, in one case... uh, Someone called up and was talking around the bush about the bush, not a close friend, but someone a friend of a friend, and I didn't. I was waiting for the headline to come, and I could feel tremendous anxiety and anguish. and I said, "You know, what's going on?" And this person said, "Well, uh, this event has restimulated uh, the same kind of the memory of when my daughter took her life, and more and more I'm hearing this pushing into whatever fears you may have had uh, being projected onto a future uh, that uh, is frightening where we start to imagine we're going to be doing this for years and there are these phantoms. Uh, then I heard an Israeli psychologist reassuring us, saying, telling, telling us that you get used to it, it's okay. Uh, well, I don't want to get used to it. And I don't know if most Israelis are so happy being used to it. I don't think they are. Um, So that's that person. Uh, I've seen... uh, It's produced something. I spoke to um, the son of a very, very close friend of mine is 25, 26. And uh, he and his age, some of his friends and what many of them are going through is it has it's been a head-on assault on their priorities and they've had to take a fresh look as to how am I living? What is it that I've thought was so important? It doesn't seem that important. Uh, A lawyer who lives upstairs where I live said I went to court today but I just went through the motions. It just all seemed trivial. I couldn't do it but I did it. it is the, the the people who are in the 26 27 year old range they sounded like they stepped out out of a Buddhist textbook from 2,500 years ago because uh, some of you know I, this we have a practice group here on aging sickness and death and the Buddha left many reflections to help arouse that sense that we don't have forever reflections on the fact that we uh, we all must age. Illness visits probably everyone or most of us and inevitably all of us die. And there are meditations uh, quite a few within all the Buddhist traditions which help you arouse those feelings of an obvious fact. It's true. It's not a Buddhist theory. Okay. The purpose being not to throw us into deeper depression but to awaken us to the preciousness of our life, and particularly if you're on a Dharma path, to arouse light, so a fire under your rear end uh, that you don't have forever. We don't have forever. And, what, you know, well, I, I really like to sit, but I have a headache today from this move. Tomorrow I'll start. Okay, then you're cultivating those qualities for another day. More kalesas, water them, give them some nice plant food, and let them grow nice and healthy. I'll do it the next day. I'm a little tired today. So what the Buddha is trying to say, get your priorities in order. If you're on a spiritual path, please understand what that means. So it's to... uh, Samvega is the Pali word, which uh, roughly, it it has to do with seeing the precious, the uh, fragile quality of life. Uh, And... Helping us turn towards um, something that isn't so transient, we put so much faith in what uh, cannot provide ultimate fulfillment. And I don't want to create a, a dualism that now we have to just reject life and shave our head and go off somewhere. It's not that. It has to do with an underlying commitment uh, to liberation, which happens wherever you are, can happen. The practice is meant to be a way of living. It's not limited to the cushion at all. So, I, I, next week we start aging, sickness, and death, learning how to live, learning how to die. That's a, I don't think I'm going to bother with all those reflections. I mean, anyone who's alive, we're already <coughs> where I can't even get people by the fifth week. We're way beyond that. So let's just start right, you know, let's get at it. I don't know. Each one of us is different. It has aroused different things in us. There's the sameness as well. But let me make a very important link. I think it is. If you're a person of practice, some of you are new. To help me, how many people are really new to this meditation practice? Really new. See, I hope this isn't sound like it's abstract and not practical. Yeah, but I, I can't help it. Um, If this brings up powerful emotions in us, really strong ones, and I'm pretty sure that probably most of us, if not everyone here, knows what I'm talking about firsthand. Um, and if the impulse to practice to be mindful of what we're experiencing uh, tends to be uh, put off to the side because the power of the, of the conditions and Uh, The emotions and all the other people that we we meet are going through the same thing. It's an unusual event. It's, in a sense, a planetary crisis. It's not just American. Uh, The human race is facing something here as a race. Um, Why would someone encourage you to sit at least spend some of your time sitting. Although it's not just sitting, it's bringing mindfulness into your life as best you can. Perhaps using the breath when you feel you're really getting lost. Just turn to a few in and out breaths. You don't have to even formally uh, assume a sitting posture or anything of that sort. Just to, uh, in a sense, short circuit uh, these uh, proliferations of imaginings that take us to Uh, inconceivable hells that await us which are coming from our mind they're not necessarily what's going to happen or some metta or ten minutes of a yoga posture or some deep breathing something to kind of get some solid ground simple practices very simple you all probably most of you know them and it's just a a matter of remembering and then coming back okay but I'm talking about beyond that I'm talking about looking at fear. I'm talking about looking at uh, whatever it is that you may be facing. And they're not uh, to be trifled with because what's being released are very powerful human emotions in many, many people. And some people, uh, particularly uh, friends in New York, but it's not limited to New York, uh, post-traumatic, what is it called? dress and other things, especially those people who are in, have lost people or are actually in the building. Uh, personally, I've had experience with survivors of the Holocaust, the Jewish Holocaust. There seem to be more than one now. Uh, I've had experience with people, uh, Russian people from the gulags, who are meditating, trying to use the vipassana practice to help them with nightmares and inability to sleep and, and memories that don't go away and, and so forth and with Vietnam vets it's, it's very difficult to work with people who've been through such uh, trauma The uh, there's this uh, tenacious uh, holding on to the suffering uh, somehow to look at what's happening is seen as uh, almost sacrilegious or vulgar or you're turning your back on people who died uh, that or that you're cheapening the experience. Somehow you have to... There are a few, only a few that I know that I've worked with. One I know took five years of very hard work. I mean interviews. and whew. So I don't underestimate what faces us at all. And each of you has the resources that you have. If you're just beginning, you have that quality of mindfulness available, but use it. I would say, in a sense, more important than how long your bun has been on the cushion is understanding and motivation. If you understand that this is uh, the best thing you can do for yourself. And let me make that a little bit more concrete. It's not to get away from, although temporarily it may be. For example, anyone who teaches these things, we're in the hot seat right now. Uh, I have four requests for interviews from magazines, Buddhist and New Age magazines, all who think that I have the answer as to how to behave to something like this. And I'm sure they've sent it to Joseph and every, you know, well, okay. And just make sure I don't forget to say this Michael, Narayan, myself, uh, everything is beginning again practice groups, Wednesday night talks, interviews, retreats. Uh, the center is here for you. We're all here. We're going to do our best to, for ourselves and for you to draw upon a resource that has helped human beings through these difficult times for centuries, thousands of years. And personally, I know it works. But of course, I'm in the business. So what would I say? <laughs> Dentists tell you to floss. <laughs> now it's more electric toothbrush if I told you it doesn't work I'd have to get an honest job for one thing so I'm not to be trusted is what I'm saying it's to take the teachings and find out for yourself if this is a bunch of baloney malarkey or if it's something that if you use it uh, awareness is your best friend right now awareness and the willingness to learn now let me spell that out We're assaulted. We feel deep pain. We feel deep apprehension about the future. If you have children, it could be worse. I'm not denying any of this. Can you bring a quality of non-judgmental attention? It's not detachment. Now, maybe to begin with, you have to pull back or you can't do it at all. Okay. But that's not really pure practice. Pure practice is quite different. It's intimate. It's opening up to. It's fully receiving your experience. It's being where there's no separation. You're intimate with your experience. If there's sorrow, let there be sorrow. But stay awake in the midst of the sorrow. Let that energy arise. Let it run its natural course. And sometimes it will teach you, not necessarily in words. Now, if you can even do a little of that, the mind gets quieter. If you're an experienced meditator, you can tap silence, even now. And then, from that clearer mind, what in Zen they call no mind, whatever language you like, clear minds as good as any, as clear as, you, as you're able to help the mind be right now, then you can return and face the challenges that face you. Each one of us face has different challenges. Challenges with our families, challenges at work, Challenges, of course, starting with ourselves, and that's why I'm saying start with yourself always. I hope America can do some of that, to look to itself, to understand how we got ourselves into this. Now, not five years later, as we did in Vietnam. Political, sorry. Um, So that it's, it's practical. It's not a matter of, the contemplative life versus, oh no, those people, they're activists, they're in the engaged Buddhism, they do things like that. They organize rallies and I'm not telling you to organize a rally. I don't know what you should do. I don't want to tell you what to do. I would like you to be better equipped to face your life as it is so that you will know what to do. Now, Sangha is a word we often hear we take refuge, those who've been around for a while, and the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha you know—get so, can get quite mechanical. We chant it and so forth. This is Sangha tonight. Uh, who doesn't know what I'm talking about? You may not agree with my angle at which I'm coming at. I don't care about that. But we're all here, and I think it's good that we have each other, even if it's just for a few hours, that we know that there are people who are hurting the way we are. But you have that all over, but also people who are trying to remain balanced, clear, sane in the midst of it. We're not any different than anyone else who's suffering, except in one sense. Let's go back to where we started. We're being asked to be peaceful, not peaceful, uh, to grieve, and at the same time, get down, get back to work, and fly, and do all those normal things. And at the same time, get ready for war, and at the same time become and at the same time we may be facing anthrax poisoning and I'm adding another one and at the same time practice. What is this guy crazy? I I can't do even any one of those things. But you see it's all the same thing and it's not a trick. Awareness is with you at least potentially all the time. No matter what it is you're doing, the possibility of mustering up that quality of sensitivity—it's our birthright. Human beings are born with awareness. We all have it. What is called the the original nature, Buddha mind, the unconditioned—that's not uh, everyone. No one got gypped. We're all born with that. It's part of our equipment. So. Whatever else you do, by all means, if you have to grieve, then know it. If things turn out to be uh, that there is an an extended war and we have to face conditions that you're not used to. I have some sense of war. I was in the Army of Occupation after World War II. I saw what was left of Germany. I know what war does, at least that kind of war. Then awareness can help you with that. It can help you agree any of these anything we hear. You're always better off if your mind can be clear. You're always worse off if your mind is confused. If you're caught up in, for example, take fear itself, which I I, get, I have a hunch is the main one we have to deal with all of us. Get to know how your mind can generate fear, how it can fabricate it. There is something to be afraid of. I'm not saying it's a hallucination or that we're uh, deluded. But the mind has a way of adding to what is factual. It has carte blanche, poetic license. It can make it into whatever it wants to. And you can create a nightmarish world that isn't here and may never come. You can create terror that's worse than anything that you'll have to face. Practice can help short-circuit that. So be honest. If it's grieving then be honest with the feelings. If it's fear, then feel that. If it's worrying about your children, feel that. But also, allow your intelligence or your wisdom uh, to stay with you as your best friend, your discernment, to begin to see uh, at a certain point, does it really help to imagine a world of what's happening? Some of it may be necessary to uh, stimulate a certain kind of intelligence to help us act sensibly and intelligently as citizens of this world and of this country. And finally, and I'd like to hear, I'm not sure it's finally, but maybe it is. Um, It must be hard to be Muslim right now. Uh, We have uh, corresponded with the Islamic Center over on Prospect Street. I've called up and we're doing our best. It's not much, but but let's put that in the context of, what, of the challenge we face. And we know that it affects people who look as if they might be Muslim. Poor Sikh was gunned down. You all know this. Okay. Look to your own mind. I walk past a gas station and I know the gas, the, gas station attendants, not personally, but I, and I know one is from the Middle East. And I hadn't thought of him. He's not important in my life. You know, I just walked past there on the way to Bread and Circus. And uh, yesterday I walked past, and I—I I realized, I put a double take. I looked, and I looked a little bit longer, and he saw. Uh, what we have to be careful about is something that, is as if you're a vipassana practitioner, the mind um, creates images, projections, images of yourself. I am an X, Y, Z, the story of me and my life starring me. Produced by me, directed by me, etc. <laughs> and it also produces images of others. Oh, yeah, that person, they're a X, XYZ, of course. And we don't, we, our relationships are not fresh. We're not fresh with ourselves. We actually take for granted these stories about ourselves and unexamined pictures of who it is we're, we're talking to. I call it stereotyping. It's as good a word as any. This is a time to be very careful about that, particularly with people who maybe need a little bit of support. But again, it's tricky. You hear on the news, be careful. After all, any person who is Islamic may be a terrorist. They may have harbored someone who's a terrorist. We'll be harboring them right now. uh, On the one hand, uh, Bush and any sensible person is saying please don't get sucked into that that all is, uh, all Muslims are terrorists. And then again, there's an alarm out with the FBI doing an unprecedented search that uh, the people who did this passed as just good folks. You know, just the guy next door, sweetheart, going to the gym now. So the challenges are great. And I think, uh, I hope the practice can... Help you meet them. Uh, Draw upon the center, draw upon your own inner strength. One feeling that I have, I've had for years now, I hope it comes through in my teaching. I see most people as much stronger than they think they are. I really do. By strong, I don't mean this, I mean inner. That's where it counts. So use the practice. If there's fear, if there's anguish, if there's hatred, Uh, this is a time to practice with it, in a way what it does, what it accomplishes, it helps liberate you a little bit more as a person and that is just what the Dharma is about, it's about liberation and at the same time that very same act which you might call contemplative, meditative, Dharmic, Buddhist because inescapably linked to that is a clearer mind you have a mind that is more able to deal with, admittedly, a very, very difficult situation right now. So practice is not something rarefied. It's it's very, very practical. I hope you can come to see it that way. And uh, thanks for your attention.